Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. Business communication, the power of talk, who gets heard and why. By Deborah Tanem. This article appears in Harvard Business Review. The head of a large division of a multinational corporation was running a meeting devoted to performance assessment. Each senior manager stood up, reviewed the individuals in his group, and evaluated them for promotion. Although there were women in every group, not one of them made the cut. One after another, each manager declared in effect that every woman in his group didn't have the self-confidence needed to be promoted. The division head began to doubt his ears. How could it be that all the talented women in the division suffered from a lack of self-confidence? In all likelihood, they didn't. Consider the many women who have left large corporations to start their own businesses, obviously exhibiting enough confidence to succeed on their own. Judgments about confidence can be inferred only from the way people present themselves and much of that presentation is in the form of talk. The CEO of a major corporation told me that he often has to make decisions in five minutes about matters on which others may have worked five months. He said he uses this rule. If the person making the proposal seems confident, the CEO approves it. If not, he says no. This might seem like a reasonable approach, but my field of research, sociolinguistics, suggests otherwise. The CEO obviously thinks he knows what a confident person sounds like, but his judgment, which may be dead right for some people, may be dead wrong for others. Communication isn't as simple as saying what you mean. <clears throat> Communication isn't as simple as saying what you mean. How you say what you mean is crucial and differs from one person to the next because using language is learned social behavior. How we talk and listen are deeply influenced by cultural experience. Although we might think that our ways of saying what we mean are natural, we can run into trouble if we interpret and evaluate others as if they necessarily felt the same way we'd feel if we spoke the way they did. Since 1974, I have been researching the influence of linguistic style on conversations and human relationships. In the past four years, I have extended that research to the workplace where I have observed how ways of speaking learned in childhood affect judgments of competence and confidence, as well as who gets heard, who gets credit, and who gets done. Who gets heard, who gets credit, and what gets done. The division head who was dumbfounded to hear that all the talented women in his organization lacked confidence was probably right to be skeptical. The senior managers were judging the women in their groups by their own linguistic uh, norms, by their own linguistic uh, norms, but when 
But women, like people who have grown up in a different culture, have often learned different styles of speaking than men, which can make them seem less competent and self-assured than they are. What is linguistic style? Everything that is said must be said in a certain way, in a certain tone of voice, at a certain rate of speed, and with a certain degree of loudness. Whereas often we consciously consider what to say before speaking, we rarely think about how to say it unless the situation is obviously loaded, for example, a job interview or a tricky performance review. Linguistic style refers to a person's characteristic speaking pattern. It includes such features as directness or indirectness, pacing and posing, word choice, and the use of such elements as jokes, figures of speech, stories, questions, and apologies. In other words, linguistic style is a set of culturally learned signals. In other words, linguistic style is a set of culturally learned signals by which we not only communicate what we mean, but also interpret others' meaning and evaluate one another as people. Consider turn-taking. One element of linguistic style. Consider turn-taking. One element of linguistic style. Conversation is an enterprise in which people take turns. One person speaks, then the other responds. However, this apparently simple exchange requires a subtle negotiation of signals so that you know when the other person is finished and it's your turn to begin. Cultural factors such as country or region of origin and ethnic background influence how long a pause seems natural. When Bob, who is from Detroit, has a conversation with his colleague Joe from New York City, it's hard for him to get a word in edgewise because he expects a slightly longer pause between turns than Joe does. A pause of that length never comes because before it has a chance to, Joe senses an uncomfortable silence which he fills with more talk of his own. Both men fail to realize that differences, that differences in conversational style are getting in their way. Bob thinks that Joe is pushy and uninterested in what he has to say, and Joe thinks that Bob doesn't have much to contribute. Similarly, when Sally relocated from Texas to Washington, D.C., she kept searching for the right time to break in during staff meetings and never found it. Although in Texas she was considered outgoing and confident, in Washington she was perceived as shy and retiring. Her boss even suggested she take an assertiveness training course. Thus, slight differences in conversational style, in these cases a few seconds of pause, can have a surprising impact on who gets heard and on the judgments, including psychological ones, that are made about people and their abilities. Every utterance functions on two levels. We are all familiar with the first one, language communicates ideas language communicates ideas. The second level is mostly invisible to us, but it plays a powerful role in communication. As a form of social behavior, language also negotiates relationships 
through ways of speaking, we signal and create the relative status of speakers and their level of rapport. If you say sit down, you are signaling that you have higher status than the person you are addressing, that you are so close to each other that you can drop all uh, pleasantries or that you are angry. If you say I would be honored if you would sit down, you are signaling great respect or great uh, sarcasm depending on your tone of voice, the situation and what you both know about how close you really are. If you say you must be so tired, why don't you sit down? You are communicating either closeness and concern or condensation or condensation or condensation. Condescension, sorry, condescension. Each of these ways of saying the same thing, telling someone to sit down, can have a vastly different meaning. In every community known to linguists, the patterns that constitute linguistic style are relatively different for men and women. What's natural for most men speaking a given language is, in some cases, What's natural for most men speaking a given language is in some cases different from what's natural for most women. That is because we learn ways of speaking as children growing up, especially from peers and children tend to play with other children of the same sex. The research of the sociologist, anthropologist, and psychologist observing American children at play has shown that Although both girls and boys find ways of creating rapport and negotiating status, girls tend to learn conversational rituals that focus on the rapport dimension of relationships, whereas boys tend to learn rituals that focus on the status dimension. Girls tend to play with a a single best friend or in small groups, and they spend a lot of time talking. They use language to negotiate how close they are. For example, the girl you tell Uh, your secrets to, uh, for example, the girl you tell your secrets to becomes your best friend. Girls learn to downplay ways in which one is better than the others and to emphasize ways in which they are all the same. From childhood, most girls learn that sounding too sure of themselves will make them unpopular with their peers, although nobody really takes such modesty literally. A group of girls will ostracize a girl who calls attention to her own superiority and criticize her by saying she thinks she is something. And a girl who tells others what to do is called bossy. Thus, girls learn to talk in ways that balance their own needs with those of others to save face for one another in the broadest sense of the term. Boys tend to play very differently. They usually play in larger groups in which more boys can be included, but not everyone is treated as an equal. Boys with high status in their group are expected to emphasize rather than downplay their status, and usually one or several boys will be seen as the leader or leaders. Boys generally don't accuse one another of being bossy because the leader is expected to tell lower status boys what to do. Boys learn to use language to negotiate their status in the group by displaying their abilities and knowledge and by challenging others and resisting challenges. Giving orders is one way of getting and keeping the high status role. Another is taking center stage by telling stories or jokes. This 
is not to say that all boys and girls grow up this way or feel comfortable in these groups or are equally successful at negotiating within these norms. But for the most part, these childhood playgroups are where boys and girls learn their conversational styles. In this sense, they grow up in different worlds. The result is that women and men tend to have different habitual ways of saying what they mean, and conversations between them can be like cross-cultural communication. You can't assume that the other person means what you would mean if you said the same thing in the same way. You can't assume that the other person means what you would mean if you said the same thing in the same way. My research in companies across the United States shows that the lessons learned in childhood carry over into the workplace. Consider the following example. A focus group was organized at a major multinational company to evaluate a recently implemented flexi time policy. The participants sat in a circle and discussed the new system. The group concluded that it was excellent, but they also agreed on ways to improve it. The meeting went well and was deemed a success by all according to my own observations and everyone's comments to me. But the next day I was in for a surprise. I had left the meeting with the impression that Phil had been responsible for most of the suggestions adopted by the group. But as I typed up my notes, I noticed that Cheryl had made almost all those suggestions. I had thought that the key ideas came from Phil because he had picked up Cheryl's points and supported them, speaking at a greater length in doing so than she had in raising them. <coughs> it would be easy to regard Phil as having stolen Cheryl's ideas and her thunder, but that would be inaccurate. Phil never claimed Cheryl's ideas as his own. Cheryl herself told me later that she left the meeting confident she had contributed significantly and that appreciated uh, Phil's uh, support. Uh, she volunteered with a laugh. It was not one of those times when a woman says something and it's ignored. Then a man says it and it's picked up. In other words, Cheryl and Phil worked well as a team. The group fulfilled its charge and the company got what needed. So what was the problem? I went back and asked all the participants they thought had been the most influential group member, the one most responsible for the ideas that had been adopted. The patterns, the pattern of answers was revealing. The two other women in the group named Cheryl, the two of the three men named Phil. One of the men, only Phil, named Cheryl. In other words, in this instance, the women evaluated the contribution of another woman more accurately than the men did. Meetings like this take place daily in companies around the country. Unless managers are unusually good at listening closely to how people say what they mean, the talents of someone like Cheryl may well be undervalued, undervalued and underutilized. <coughs> one up, one down. Individual speakers vary in how sensitive they are to the social dynamics of language, in other words, to the subtle nuances of what others say to them. Men tend to be sensitive to the power dynamics of interaction, speaking in ways that 
position themselves as one up and resisting being put in a one down position by others. Women tend to react more strongly to the rapport dynamic, speaking in ways that save face for others and buffering statements that could be seen as putting others in a one-down position. These linguistic patterns, these linguistic patterns are very pervasive. You can hear them in hundreds of exchanges in the workplace every day. And as in the case of Cheryl and Phil, they affect who gets heard and who gets credit. Getting credit. Even so small a linguistic strategy as the choice of pronoun can affect who gets credit. In my research in the workplace, I heard men, I heard men say I in situations where I heard women say we. For example, one publishing company executive said, I'm hiring a new manager. I'm going to put him in charge of my marketing division as if he owned the corporation. In a stark contrast, I recorded women saying we when referring to work they alone had done. One woman explained that it would sound too self-promoting to claim credit in an obvious way by saying I did this. Yet she expected sometimes vainly that others would know it uh, would know it was her work and would, would give her the credit she did not claim for herself. Even the choice of pronoun can affect who gets credit. Managers might leap to the conclusion that women who do not take credit for what they've done should be taught to do so. But that solution is problematic because we associate ways of speaking with moral qualities. The way we speak is who we are and who we want to be. Uh, Veronica, a senior researcher in a high-tech company, had an observant boss had an observant boss. He noticed that many of the ideas coming out of the group were hers, but that often someone else trumpeted them around the office and got credit for them. He advised her to own her ideas and make sure she got the credit. But Veronica found she simply didn't enjoy her work if she had to approach it as what seemed to her an unattractive and unappealing grabbing game. It was her dislike of such behavior that had led her to avoid it in the first place. Whatever the motivation, women are less likely than men to have learned to blow their own horn, and they are more likely than men to believe that if they do so, they won't be liked. Many have argued that the growing trend of assigning work to teams may be especially congenial to women, but it may also create complications for performance evaluation. When ideas are generated and work is accomplished in the privacy of the team, the outcome of the team's effort may become associated with the person most vocal about reporting results. There are many women and men, but probably relatively more women, who are reluctant to put themselves forward in this way and who consequently risk not getting credit for their contributions. Confidence and boasting. Confidence and boasting. The CEO who based his decisions on the confidence level of speakers was articulating a value that is widely shared in U.S. businesses. One way to judge confidence is by 
an individual's behavior, especially verbal behavior. Here again, many women are at a disadvantage. Studies show that women are more likely to downplay their certainty and men are more likely to minimize their doubts. Studies show that women are more likely to downplay their certainty and men are more likely to minimize their doubts. Psychologist uh, Lori <coughs> Hetherington and her colleagues devised an ingenious experiment which they reported in the journal uh, Sex Rolls, volume 29, 1993. They asked hundreds of incoming college students to predict what grades they would get in their first year. Some subjects were asked to make their predictions privately. Some subjects were asked to make their predictions privately by writing them down. Some subjects were asked to make their predictions privately by writing them down and placing them in an envelope. Others were asked to make their predictions publicly in the presence of a researcher. The results showed that more women than men predicted lower grades for themselves if they made their predictions publicly. If they made their predictions privately, the predictions were the same as those of the men and the same as their actual grades. This study provides evidence that what comes across as lack of confidence predicting lower grades for oneself may reflect not one's actual level of confidence, but the desire not to seem boastful. Women are likely to downplay their certainty. Men are likely to minimize their doubts. These habits with regard to appearing humble or confident result from the socialization of boys and girls by, the, by their peers in childhood play. As adults, both women and men find these behaviors reinforced by the positive responses they get from friends and relatives who share the same norms. But the norms of behavior in the U.S. business world are based on the style of interaction that is more common among men, at least among American men. Asking questions. Although asking the right question is one of the hallmarks of a good manager, how and when questions are asked can send unintended signals about competence and power. In a group, if only one person asks a question, he or she risks being seen as the only ignorant one. Furthermore, we judge others not only by how they speak, but also by how they are spoken to. The person who asks questions may end up being lectured to and looking like a novice under a schoolmaster's tutelage. The person who asks questions may end up being lectured to and looking like a novice under a schoolmaster's tutelage. The way boys are socialized makes them more likely to be aware of the underlying power dynamic by which a question asker uh, a question asker can be seen in a one-down position. One practicing physician learned. One practicing physician learned the hard way that any exchange of information can become the basis for judgments. One practicing phys- physician learned the hard way that any exchange of information can become the basis for judgments or misjudgments about competence.
During her training, she received a negative evaluation that she thought was unfair, so she asked her supervising physician for an explanation. He said that she knew less than her peers. Amazed at his answer, she asked how he had reached that conclusion. He said, you ask more questions. Along with cultural influences and individual personality, gender seems to play a role in whether and when people ask questions. For example, of all the observations I've made in lectures and books, the one that sparks the most enthusiastic flash of recognition is that men are less likely than women to stop and ask for directions when they are lost. I explained that men often resist asking for directions because they are aware that it puts them in a one-down position and because they value the independence that comes with finding their way by themselves. Asking for directions while driving is only one instance along with many others that researchers have examined in which men seem less likely than women to ask questions. I believe this is because they are more attuned than women to the potential face-losing aspect of asking questions and men who believe that asking questions might reflect negatively on them may in turn be likely to form a negative opinion of others who ask questions in situations where they would not. Men are more attuned than women to the potential face-losing aspect of asking questions. Conversational rituals. Conversation is fundamentally ritual in the sense that we speak in ways our culture has conventionalized and expect certain types of responses. Take greetings, for example. I have heard visitors to the United States complain that Americans are hypocritical because they ask how you are, but aren't interested in the answer. To Americans, how are you is obviously a ritualized way to start a conversation rather than a literal request for information. In other parts of the world, including the Philippines, people ask each other, where are you going when they meet? The question seems intrusive to Americans who do not realize that it too is a ritual query to which the only expected reply is vague over there. It's easy and entertaining to observe different rituals in foreign countries, but we don't expect differences and are far less likely to, likely to recognize the ritualized nature of our conversations when we are with our compatriots at work. Our differing rituals can be even more problematic when we think we are all speaking the same language. Apologies. Consider the simple phrase, I'm sorry. Catherine, how did that big presentation go? Bob, oh, not very well. I got a lot of flack. Uh, I got a lot of flack uh, criticism. Oh, not very well. I got a lot of flack, meaning criticism, from the VP for finance, and I didn't have the numbers at my fingertips. Catherine, oh, I'm sorry. I know how hard you worked on that. In this case, I'm sorry probably means I'm sorry that happened, not I apologize, unless it was Catherine's responsibility to supply Bob with the numbers for the presentation. Women tend to say I'm sorry more frequently than men, and often they intend it in this way as a ritualized 
means of expressing concern. It's one of many learned or learned elements of conversational style that girls often use to establish rapport. Ritual apologies, like other conversational rituals, work well when both parties share the same assumptions about their use. But people who utter frequent ritual apologies may end up appearing weaker, less confident, and literally more blameworthy than people who don't. Apologies tend to be regarded differently by men who are more likely to focus on the status implications of exchanges. Many men avoid apologies because they see them as putting the speaker in a one-down position. I observed with some amazement an encounter among several lawyers engaged in a negotiation over a speaker phone. At one point, the lawyer in whose office I was sitting accidentally elbowed the telephone and cut off the call. When his, sec- when his secretary got the parties back on, on again, when his secretary got the parties back on again, I expected him to say what I would have said. Sorry about that. I knocked the phone with my elbow. Instead, he said, hey, what happened? One minute you were there. The next minute you were gone. This lawyer seemed to have an automatic impulse not to admit fault if he didn't have to. For me, it was one of those pivotal moments when you realize that the world you live in is not the one everyone lives in and that the way you assume is the way to talk is really only one of many. Is only one of many. Those who caution managers not to undermine their authority by apologizing are approaching interaction from the perspective of the power dynamic. In many cases, this strategy is effective. On the other hand, when I asked people what frustrated them in their jobs, one frequently voiced complaint was working with or for someone who refuses to apologize or admit fault. In other words, accepting responsibility for errors and admitting mistakes may be an equally effective or superior strategy in some settings. Feedback. Styles of giving feedback contain a ritual element that often is the cause for misunderstanding. Consider the following exchange. A manager had to tell her marketing director to rewrite a report. She began this potentially awkward task by citing the report's strengths and then moved to the main point, the weaknesses that needed to be remedied. The marketing director seemed to understand and accept his supervisor's comment, but his Revision contained only minor changes and failed to address the major weaknesses. When the manager told him of her, when the manager told him of her dissatisfaction, he accused her of misleading him. You told me it was fine. The impasse resulted from different linguistic styles. To the manager, it was natural to buffer the criticism by beginning with a praise telling her subordinate that his report is inadequate and has to be rewritten puts him in a one-down position. Praising him for the parts that are good is a ritualized way of saving face for him. But the marketing direct- director did not share his supervisor's assumption about how feedback should be given. Instead, he assumed that what she mentioned first was the main point and that uh, and, and that what she brought up later was 
an afterthought. Those who expect feedback to come in the way the manager presented it would appreciate her tact and would regard a more blunt approach as unnecessarily callous. Callous. But those who share the marketing director's assumptions would regard the blunt approach as honest and no nonsense and the managers as uh, obfuscating and the manager as obfuscating, uh, bewildering, meaning obscuring, unclear, obfuscating. Because each one's assumption seemed self-evident, each blamed the other. The manager thought the marketing director was not listening and he thought she had not communicated clearly or had changed her mind. <clears throat> this is significant because it illustrates that incidents labeled vaguely as poor communication <clears throat> may be the result of differing linguistic styles. <clears throat> styles. Compliments. Exchanging compliments, compliments is a common ritual, especially among women. A mismatch in expectations about this ritual left Susan, a manager in the human resources field, in a one-down position. She and her colleague Bill had both given presentations at a national conference. On the airplane home, Susan told Bill that was a great talk. Thank you, he said. Then she asked, what did you think of mine? He responded with a lengthy and detailed critique as she listened uncomfortably. An unpleasant feeling of having been put down came over her. Somehow, she had been positioned as the novice in need of his expert advice. Even worse, she had only herself to blame, since she had, after all, asked Bill what he thought of her talk. But had Susan asked for the response she received, but had Susan asked for the response she received, she asked Bill what he thought about her talk. She expected to hear not a critique, but a compliment. In fact, her question had been an attempt to repair a ritual gone awry. Susan's initial compliment to Bill was the kind of automatic recognition she felt was more or less required after a colleague gives a presentation and she expected Bill to respond with a matching compliment. She was just talking automatically, but he either sincerely misunderstood the ritual, simply took the opportunity to bask in the one-up position of critic. <clears throat> Whatever his motivation, it was Susan's attempt to spark exchange of compliments that gave him opening. Although this exchange could have occurred between two men, it does not seem coincidental that it happened between a man and a woman. Uh, linguist Janet Holmes discovered that women pay more uh, compliments than men. Anthropological Linguistics, Volume 28, 1986. And as I have observed, fewer men are likely to ask, what did you think of my talk? Precisely because the question might invite an unwanted critique. In the social structure of the peer groups in which the, they grew in the social structure of the peer groups in which they grow up, boys are in, indeed looking for opportunities to put others down and take the one-up position for themselves. In contrast, 
One of the rituals girls learn is taking the one down position, but also assuming that the other person will recognize the ritual nature of this self-denigration and pull them back up. The exchange between Susan and Bill also suggests how women's and men's characteristic styles uh, may put women at a disadvantage in the workplace. If one person is trying to minimize status differences, maintain an appearance that everyone is equal and safe face for the other, while other person is trying to maintain the one-up position and avoid being positioned as one down, the person seeking the one-up position is likely to get it again. If one person is trying to minimize status differences, maintain an appearance that everyone is equal and save face for the other, while another person is trying to maintain the one-up position and avoid being positioned as one down, the person seeking the one-up position is likely to get it. At the same time, the person who has not been expending any effort to avoid the one-down position is likely to end up in it because women are more likely to take or accept the role of advice seeker. Men are more inclined to interpret a ritual question from a woman as a request for advice. Ritual Opposition Apologizing, mitigating criticism with a praise, apologizing, mitigating criticism with a praise, and exchanging compliments are ritual common among women that men often take literally. A ritual common among men that women often take literally is ritual uh, opposition. A woman in communications told me she watched with distaste and distress as her office mate argued heatedly with another colleague about whose division should suffer budget cuts. She was even more surprised, however, that a short time later they were as friendly as ever. How can you pretend that fight never happened? She asked. Who's pretending it never happened? He responded, as puzzled by her question as she had been by his behavior. It happened, he said. It happened, he said, and it's over. What she took as literal fighting to him was a routine part of daily negotiation, a ritual, a ritual fight. Many Americans expect the discussion of ideas to be a ritual fight, that is, an exploration through verbal opposition. They present their own ideas in the most certain and absolute form they can and wait to see if they are challenged. Challenge. Being forced to defend an idea provides an opportunity to test it. In the same spirit, they may play devil's advocate in challenging their colleagues' ideas, trying to poke holes and find weaknesses as a way of helping them explore and test their ideas. This style can work well if everyone shares it, but those unaccustomed to it are likely to miss its ritual nature. They may give up an idea that is challenged, taking the objections as an indication that the idea was a poor one. Worse, they may take the opposition as a personal attack and may find it impossible to do their best in a contentious environment. People unaccustomed to this style may hedge. People unaccustomed to this personal style may hedge. Uh, sorry. People unaccustomed to this style may hedge or safeguard when stating their ideas in order to fend off potential attacks. 
Ironically, this posture makes their arguments appear weak and is more likely to invite attack from uh, uh, pugnacious uh, colleagues than to fend it off. Again, ironically, this posture makes their argument appear weak and is more likely to invite attack from uh, pugnacious colleagues than to fend it off. Pugnacious means uh, combative colleague. Ritual opposition can even play a role in who gets hired. Some consulting firms that recruit graduates from the top business schools use a confrontational interviewing technique. They challenge the candidate to crack a case in real time. A partner at one firm told me women tend to do less well in this kind of interaction and it certainly affects who gets hired. But in fact, many women who do not test well turn out to be good consultants. They are often smarter than some of the men who looked like analytic powerhouses under pressure. They are often smarter than some of the men who look like analytic powerhouses under pressure. Those who are uncomfortable with verbal opposition, women or men, run the risk of seeming insecure about their ideas. The level of verbal opposition varies from one company's culture to the next, but I saw instances of it in all the organizations I studied. Anyone who is uncomfortable with this linguistic style, and that includes some men as well as many women, risks appearing insecure about his or her ideas. Negotiating authority. In organizations, formal authority comes from the position one holds, but actual authority has to be negotiated day to day. The effectiveness of individual managers depends in part on their skill in negotiating authority and on whether others reinforce or undercut their efforts. The way linguistic style reflects status plays a subtle role in placing individuals within a hierarchy. Managing up and down. In all the companies I researched, I heard from women who knew they were doing a, super, a superior job and knew that their co-workers and sometimes their immediate bosses knew it as well, but believed that the higher-ups didn't. In all the companies I researched, I heard from women who knew they were doing a superior job and knew that their co-workers and sometimes their immediate bosses knew it as well, but believed that the higher-ups did not. They frequently told me that something outside themselves was holding them back and found it frustrating because they thought that all that should be necessary for success was to do, uh, was to do a great job. That superior performance should be recognized and rewarded. In contrast, men often told me that if women weren't promoted, it was because they simply weren't up to snuff. They were not up to snuff. Uh, looking around, however, I saw evidence that men more often than women behaved in ways likely to get them recognized by those with the power to determine their advancement. In all the companies I visited, I observed what happened at lunchtime. I saw young men who regularly ate lunch with their boss and senior men who ate with the big boss. I noticed 
far fewer women who sought out the highest level person they could eat with. But one is more likely to get recognition for work done if one talks about it to those higher up, and it is easier to do so if the lines of communication are already open. Furthermore, given the opportunity for a conversation with superiors, men and women are likely to have different ways of talking about their accomplishments because of the different ways in which they were socialized as children. Boys are rewarded by their peers if they talk up their achievements, whereas girls are rewarded if they play theirs down. Linguistic styles common among men may tend to give them some advantages when it comes to managing up. All speakers are aware of the status of the person they are talking to and adjust accordingly. Everyone speaks differently when talking to a boss than when talking to a subordinate. But surprisingly, the ways in which they adjust their talk may be different and thus may project different images of themselves. Communications researchers uh, Karen Tracy and Eric Eisenberg studied how relative status affects the way people give criticism. They devised a business letter that contained some errors and asked 13 male and 11 female college students to role play delivering criticism, criticism under two scenarios. In the first, the speaker was a boss talking to, the, to a subordinate. In the second, the speaker was a subordinate talking to his or her boss. The researchers measured how hard the speakers tried to avoid hurting the feelings of the person they were criticizing. One might expect people to be more careful about how they deliver criticism when they are in a subordinate position. Tracy and Eisenberg found that the hypothesis to be true for the men in their study, but not for the women. As they reported in Research on Language and Social Interaction, Volume 24, uh, 1990 and 1991, the women showed more concern about the other person's feelings when they were playing the role of superior. In other words, the, one, the women were more careful to save face for the other person when they were managing down than when they were managing up. This pattern recalls, this pattern recalls the way girls are socialized. Those who are in some way superior are expected to downplay rather than flaunt their superiority. In my own recordings of workplace communication, I observed women talking in similar ways. For example, when a manager had to correct a mistake made by her secretary, she did so by acknowledging that there were mitigating circumstances. She said, laughing, you know, it's hard to do things around here, isn't it? With all these people coming in. The manager was saving face for her subordinate, just like the female students role-playing in the Tracy and Eisen Berg study. Uh, is this an effective way to communicate? One must ask, effective for what? The manager in question established a positive environment in her group and the work was done effectively. On the other hand, numerous women in many different fields told me that their bosses say they don't project the proper authority. Indirectness. Another linguistic signal that varies with power and status is indirectness, the tendency to say what we mean without spelling it out in so many words. Despite the widespread, the, 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 despite the widespread belief in the United States that it's always best to say exactly what we mean, 
Indirectness is a fundamental and pervasive element in human communication. It also is one of the elements that vary most from one culture to another, and it can cause enormous misunderstanding when speakers have different habits and expectations about how it is used. It's often said that American women are more indirect than American men. But in fact, everyone tends to be indirect in some situations and in different ways. Allowing for cultural, ethnic, regional, and individual differences, women are especially likely to be indirect when it comes to telling others what to do, which is not surprising considering girls' readiness to brand other girls as bossy. On the other hand, men are especially likely to be indirect when it comes to admitting fault or weakness, which also is not surprising considering boys' readiness to push around boys who assume the one-down position. At first glance, it would seem that only the powerful can get away with bold commands such as, have that report on my desk by noon. Have that report on my desk by noon. But power in an organization also can lead to requests so indirect that they don't sound like requests at all. A boss who says, do we have the sales data by product line for each region? Would be surprised and frustrated if a subordinate responded, we probably do, rather than I'll get it for you. Examples such as these notwithstanding, many researchers have claimed that those in subordinate positions are more likely to speak indirectly, and that is surely, uh, surely accurate in some situations. For example, linguist Charlotte Linde, Charlotte Linde, in a study published in Language in Society, Volume 17, 1988, examined the black box conversations that took place between pilots and co-pilots before airplane crashes. In one particularly tragic instance, an Air Florida plane crashed into the uh, Potomac, the Potomac River immediately after attempting take off from National Airport in Washington, D.C., killing all but five of the 74 people on board. The pilot, it turned out, had little experience flying in icy weather. The co-pilot had a bit more, and it became uh, heartbreakingly clear on analysis that he had tried to warn the pilot, but had done so indirectly. Uh, Alerted by Linda's conversation, I examined the transcript of the conversations and found evidence of her hypothesis. The co-pilot repeatedly called attention to the bad weather and to ice buildup on other planes. Co-pilot, look how the ice is just hanging on his. Ah, back, back there, see that? See all those uh, icicles on the back there and everything. Pilot, yeah, the pilot, the co-pilot also expressed concern about the long waiting time since, uh, since desync. Uh, since desync, which meaning uh, de-icing, sorry. The pilot also expressed concern about long waiting time since de-icing, meaning remove the ice. Co-pilot, boy, this is a, uh, this is a losing battle here on trying to de-ice those things it gives you a false feeling of security that's all that does that's all that does 
just before they took off, the co-pilot expressed another concern about abnormal instrument readings, but again, he didn't press the matter when it wasn't picked up by the pilot. Co-pilot, that don't seem right, does it? Uh, third second pause. Ah, that's not right. Well, pilot, yes, it is. There is 80. Co-pilot, no, I don't think that's right. Seven second pause. Ah, maybe it is. Shortly thereafter, the plane took off with the tragic results. In other instances, as well as this, Linda observed that co-pilots who are second in command are more likely to express themselves indirectly or otherwise mitigate or soften their communication when they are suggesting courses of action to the pilot. In an effort to avert similar disasters, some airlines now offer training for co-pilots to express themselves in more assertive ways. This solution seems self-evidently appropriate to most Americans, but when I assigned Linda's article in a graduate seminar I taught, a Japanese student pointed out that it would be just as effective to train pilots to pick up on hints. This approach reflects assumptions about communication that typify Japanese culture, which places great value on the ability of people to understand one another, one another without putting everything into words. Either directness or indirectness can be a successful means of communication as long as the linguistic style is understood by the participants. In the world of work, however, there is more at stake than whether the communication is understood. People in powerful positions are likely to reward styles similar to their own because we all tend to take as self-evident the logic of our own styles. Accordingly, there is evidence that in the U.S. workplace where instructions from a superior are expected to be voiced in a relatively direct manner, those who tend to be indirect when telling subordinates what to do may be perceived as lacking in confidence. People in powerful positions are likely to reward linguistic styles similar to their own. Consider the case of the manager at the National Magazine who was responsible for giving assignments to reporters. She tended to phrase her assignments as questions. For example, she asked, how would you like to do the X project with Y? Or said, I was thinking of putting you on the X project. Is that okay? This worked extremely well with her staff. They liked working with her or they like working for her and the work got done in, a, in an efficient and orderly manner. But when she had her uh, mid-year evaluation with her own boss, he criticized her for not assuming the proper demeanor with her staff. In any work environment, the higher ranking person has the power to enforce his or her view of appropriate demeanor created in part by linguistic style. In most U.S. contexts, that view is likely to assume that the person in authority has the right to be relatively direct rather than to mitigate orders. There also are cases, however, in which the higher-ranking person assumes a more indirect style. The owner of a retail operation told her subordinate, a store manager, to do something. He said he would do it, but a week later, he still hadn't. They were able to trace the difficulty to the following conversation. She had said, she had said, the bookkeeper needs help with the billing. How would you feel about helping her out? He had said, fine. This conversation had seemed to be clear and flawless at the time, but it turned out that they had interpreted this simple exchange in a very different ways. She 
thought he meant fine, I'll help the bookkeeper uh, out. He thought he meant fine, I'll think about how I would feel about helping the bookkeeper out. He did think about it and came to the conclusion that he had more important things to do and couldn't spare the time. To the owner, how would you feel about helping the bookkeeper out was an obviously appropriate way to give the order, help the bookkeeper out with the billing. Those who expect orders to be given as bold imperatives may find such locutions annoying or even misleading. But those for whom this style is natural do not think they are being indirect. They believe they are being clear in a polite or respectful way. What is it atypical? What is atypical in this example is that the person with the more indirect style was the boss, so the store manager was motivated to adapt to her style. She still gives orders the same way, but the store manager now understands how she means what she says. It's more common in U.S. Uh, business context for the highest ranking people to take a more direct style with the result that many women in authority risk being judged by their superiors as lacking the appropriate demeanor and consequently lacking confidence. What to do? I'm often asked what is the best way to give criticism or what is uh, the best way to give orders. In other words, what is the best way to communicate? The answer is that there is no one best way. The results of a given way of speaking will vary depending on the situation, the culture of the company, the relative rank of speakers, their linguistic styles, and how those styles interact with one another. Because of all those influences, any way of speaking could be perfect for communicating with one person in one situation and disastrous with someone else in another. The critical skill for managers is to become aware of the workings and power of linguistic style to make sure that people with something valuable to contribute to get hurt. It may seem, for example, that running a meeting in an unstructured way gives equal opportunity to all. But awareness of the differences in conversational style makes it easy to see the potential for unequal access. Those who are comfortable speaking up in groups, who need little or no silence before raising their hands, or who speak out easily without waiting to be recognized are far more likely to get heard at meetings. Those who refrain from talking until it's clear that the previous speaker is finished, who wait to be recognized, and who are inclined to link their comments to those of others will do fine at a meeting where everyone else is following the same rules, but will have a hard time getting heard in a meeting uh, with people whose styles are more like, are more like the first pattern. Given the socialization physical, sorry, given the socialization, socialization typical of boys and girls, men are more likely to have learned the first style and women the second, making meetings more congenial for men than for women. It's common to observe women who participate actively in one-on-one -on -one discussions or in all female groups, but who are seldom heard in meetings with a large proportion of men. On the other hand, there are women who share the style more common among men, and they run a different risk of being seen as too aggressive. A manager aware of those dynamics might devise any number of ways of ensuring that everyone's ideas are heard and credited. Although no single solution will fit all contexts, managers who understand 
the dynamics of linguistic style can develop more adaptive and flexible approaches to running or participating in meetings, mentoring or advancing the careers of others, evaluating performance and so on. Talk is the lifeblood of managerial work and understanding that different people have different ways of saying what they mean will make it possible to take advantage of the talents of people with a broad range of linguistic styles. As the workplace becomes more natural, as the workplace becomes more culturally diverse and business becomes more global, managers will need to become even better at reading interactions and more flexible in adjusting their own styles to the people with whom they interact. Alhamdulillah, praise be to Allah. Uh, Deborah Tannen is university professor and a professor of linguistics at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. She is the author of 15 books, including You Just Don't Understand, Women and Men in Conversation, William Morrow, 1990, which introduced to the general public the idea of female and male styles of communication. The material in this article is drawn from talking from 9 to 5, uh, Avon Books, 1995. Alhamdulillah, praise be to Allah. This is Dr. Khalid Ibrahim al-Dosiri from the Mam, Saudi Arabia, reading this uh, small booklet. Salam, peace.